0: SWS Growth Equity Strategy Update for Q3 2022. This is Mike Parker, Lead Portfolio Manager for SWS Growth Equity, our flagship long only growth strategy benchmarked against the Russell 1000 Growth Index. I'll start off with the introduction before handing it over to Kurt Grove, who will walk through issuer specific takeaways. Our written commentary includes a number of graphs and URLs with relevant reference material. Please refer to the PDF copy for access to these supporting data. For the third quarter of 2022, SWS Growth Equity returned 3.10% gross fees, outperforming the negative 3.6% total return of the Russell 1000 Growth Index, our strategy's stated benchmark. In this installment of our quarterly accountability check-in, we offer up our latest effort to extract signal from noise while providing a glimpse of our continual bottom-up fundamental underwriting in our contributors and detractors analysis later on. Any attempt to make sense of equity market dislocations invariably entails a careful study of historical precedent. Through its lens, we attempt to diagnose our plot point and whether that falls on the slope of recovery or decline. The next natural step is an attempt to isolate factors that make our predicament different this time. A task even the Federal Reserve admits is difficult to pinpoint, hence its median-by-median approach to rate hikes and the data ingest process that informs their decisions. For public equity investors, determining the market's capacity to bear risk is an interplay of art and science. Some may also say overlaid with a sixth sense. Here, our goal is to diagnose the scenarios embedded into the current public equity market price levels. Once you can reasonably conclude that humanity isn't facing mass extinction, the question quickly becomes, how forward-looking is the stock market? Dislocations ultimately transform into opportunities particularly in the public markets where the fungibility of capital seeks out the highest returning opportunities. This also happens well before the gears of economic value creation become dislodged. Often just the state of conditions getting less bad can be a capitulation point. As we roll up our sleeves to study the latest data that inform our answer to the how forward looking question today, there's a familiarity with the data-parsing exercise. It's very reminiscent of the adjustments we had to make while managing long-only capital at the pension during the global financial crisis. Back then, to make a reasonable stab at determining how cheap, quote-unquote, blue-chip stocks could get, any semi-accurate bottom-up analysis had to exclude the crater-sized hole delivered by the entirety of the financial services sector. This near-fatal wound severely hampered the equity markets for a good 24 months via earnings impairments. The pain infliction transferred from public equity shareholders to the US taxpayer once Fannie and Freddie were placed into federal conservatorship. No need to rehash that play-by-play. But the March 2009 market bottom formation arrived in the exact week of AIG executive retention bonus payouts, which delivered a second jab behind the earlier investor gut punch that was the company's record $62 billion net loss in 4Q of 2008. Side note, this along with some green shoots commentary by Bernanke were the all clear signal in U.S. public equity. A sector that began 2008 carrying an 18% index weight would deliver $184 billion in net losses to the S&P across the year. It was actually $300 billion if you include names that were booted from the index due to bankruptcy, acquisition, or index removal. Long before we knew the entire U.S. automotive manufacturing sector would require a bailout, and well before banks could make a meaningful dent in the glut of their foreclosure backlogs, the S&P 500 marked its price bottom on March 9, 2009. The index also settled at a 10.0 times forward earnings ratio that same day, where deploying capital felt like catching a falling knife. Fast forward to today, and we don't have to nix the earnings contributions of a systemically critical sector in order to determine whether fertile ground exists amidst the scorched earth surrounding us. However, just as critical adjustments are required to see past the current sources of distortion, these adjustments also account for a larger weighted average influence than the financial services sector did during the the GFC. Failing to take into consideration the modern day distortion is the Achilles heel of prognosticator's assessment that the market's current roughly 15 times forward PE faces another 20 to 30% impairment on valuation alone. Today, the 10 largest constituents of the S&P 500 comprise 29% of index weight. Slicing out their earnings contribution paints a very different picture of what's priced into current market levels. Specifically, what valuation the remaining 98% of index constituents implies. At the end of our prior quarter, the 15.2 times forward PE of the overall S&P 500 translates to 10.5 times for the 495 issuers that fall outside its 10 largest the latter of which averaged 27.0 times. Please see our PDF for a chart on this concentration impact of the S&P 500. Discerning why March 2009 merited its 10.0 times bottom PE, whereas October 2002 hit a 14.1 floor, entails another art meets science exercise. The answer would probably lie somewhere in measuring the magnitude of financial cure required for each dislocation's cause, plus consideration for the required level of global coordination. As challenging as our current slate of macroeconomic uncertainties are, it's interesting to consider that today's S&P 500, when excluding its top 10 constituents, is close to valuation parity with the financial crisis and below that of post.com fallout. The magnitude of this top heaviness isn't an influence with which modern investors ever had to contend. Its presence was far more diminished during during the early 2000s period of irrational exuberance. For a good portion of the prior two plus decades, the largest S&P 500 constituents valuation has largely been close to parity with the rest of the pack. That is, until that relationship changed course in late 2015. Since market cap-weighted indexes are proxies to how individual company efforts roll up to GDP, for example, Amazon's systemic impact should carry greater influence than Kohl's, paying close attention to these influences are critical especially at this market juncture. To be clear, we're not viewing this as a signal to stuff a growth portfolio with swaths of sub 10 times PE issuers in hopes of mean reversion, nor are we calling a bottom. The analysis is merely a helpful tool for assessing the remaining downside realization with regard to valuation multiples. It also provides a helpful reminder of what can occur once multiples cease to contract indiscriminately. By the time the market had retested its valuation bottom in August 2010 and September of 2011, at 11.2 times and 10.3 times forward PE respectively, the S&P 500's price had already recovered 57% and 70% respectively. In other words, market multiples can go sideways while market prices rebound. The white knight to achieving this market outcome is fundamentals. Cash flow and the earnings as its, its proxy ultimately carry the market on its back out of the ashes of a recovery. We think that the solution to our predicament today entails a similar theme. Earnings are a decent proxy to study due to the continuity of their use in forward consensus estimates over decades, but they're a placeholder for the ultimate truth that we underwrite behind every securities value, cash flow available to common equity holders. We've taken steps to lower our portfolio's exposure to the sources of this valuation disparity namely via exits of Microsoft and Apple in 2020 and 2021, respectively. Each had its own stock-specific justification, but they shared our desire to be on the other side of this concentration distortion at the macro level. Today, our portfolio's weighted average market cap is $168 billion versus our benchmark's average of $700 billion. By the way, the Russell 1000 Growth's top 10 represent 47% of its constituency, a far greater concentration issue than the S&P. The expected revenue growth of our portfolio in 2023 when excluding pure cycles outlying 3000% growth is 16% year over year on a weighted average basis with free cash flow growth of 17%. Also, some outliers excluded here. Foreign exchange headwinds indeed will erode U.S. dollar translated results and inflation will persist. However, we offer up a sampling of the fundamental merits to our holdings later in this report and why that leads to the confidence of being on better footing than the overall market. The latest October read-throughs also reinforce aspects of our thesis, with both Netflix and Intuitive Surgical acting as reminders of how miscalculated prospects have become at these unique market crossroads. With our portfolio at near parity with our benchmark on valuation, adjusted PE 38.0 times versus 37.6 times, Price to sales 6.6 times versus 5.2 times. Revenue growth of 16.0% versus 9.7%. All those were us versus the benchmark, respectively. We see the delivery of fundamental results in the coming quarters as an important mechanism for upside capture. With the overall market showing signs that the public equity valuation reset is largely complete, we are very optimistic for future results of our holdings to be reflected in the pricing. Daily volatility is likely to persist and we will continue to make adjustments consistent with our investment process. Some 3Q highlights are later in our portfolio changes section. But these are the exact conditions that reward the patient, yet opportunistic investor. Our second part will be read by myself,
1: Kurt Grove, a portfolio manager on our growth equity strategy. Our reason for existence, alpha delivery. The third quarter delivered significant upside and downside volatility across equity markets, headlined by the S&P 500 delivering a total return of negative 4.88% for the quarter after being up 13.9% midway through the quarter. Comparing index returns across U.S. markets saw growth outperformed value and small-cap outperformed large-cap. The Russell 1000 growth bested the Russell 1000 value, negative 3.6% versus negative 5.6%. And the Russell 2000 outperformed the Russell 1000, negative 2.2% versus negative 4.6%. Sector-wise, it was a very bifurcated market for the S&P 500, with, the only, with only consumer discretionary and energy providing positive returns for the quarter. Traditional safe havens became less safe this quarter as utilities and real estate underperformed in tandem with the upward rate move. The only index to provide a positive return for the quarter was the Russell 2000 growth, returning a meager 0.2% return. SWS Growth Equity delivered a positive 3.1% return relative to the Russell 1000 growth at 3.6%. The intentional decision throughout 2022 to concentrate our portfolio and increase weighting to our higher conviction ideas has shifted the portfolio to a smaller market cap weighting, higher growth, and slightly higher daily volatility. Part three, contributors and detractors. Our first contributor, Etsy. Etsy had a positive rebound quarter, returning positive 37% versus consumer products peers falling negative 6% for the quarter. It has been a volatile two and a half years for Etsy's business and even more volatile period for the stock price, going from a pre-pandemic growth rate of GMS, gross merchandise sales of mid to high teens in the US to 170% in the height of the pandemic. The company now faces a slight retraction in 2022 revenue levels with an estimated 2% year-over-year decline. Etsy stock prices followed in tandem with this growth rate, going from a pre-pandemic high of $60 in March, 2020 briefly trading above $300 in December of 2021 and trading below $70 coming into the third quarter of 2022. Etsy perfectly represents what the market has decided to discard indiscriminately in 2022 as an e-commerce-centered issuer and a pull-forward pandemic beneficiary. We heavily push back on the latter point and think discerning investors will notice the relative gains Etsy has made. Etsy has seen its overall GMS go from five billion in December of nineteen to thirteen point two billion for twenty twenty two, down from a high of thirteen point four, and its active buyers have gone from forty six million to ninety four million, down from a high of ninety six million. Overall, U.S. e-commerce sales have gone from in calendar twenty nineteen of five hundred and seventy one billion to the last twelve month sales of nine hundred ninety two point one billion, growing at an annualized rate of twenty four point seven percent. After digesting and comping the truly one-time sales from face masks, Etsy has expanded its U.S. GMS from $3 billion to $7.5 billion, a 43.4% annual growth rate and easily outpacing U.S. e-commerce sales. We anticipated and are pleased by Etsy's ability to keep most of its buyers throughout the pandemic, which leads, which led to our 2021 initiation. Etsy should return to mid-teens growth over the next 12 months as the reopening comps are fully reflected in numbers now valued at just approximately $115 per active user. We think it's an attractive time to own Etsy. Etsy has demonstrated its market power with a dominant two-sided marketplace in e-commerce and is building a strong lead in markets like Germany, India, the UK, and elsewhere in Europe. And it's already achieved 30 plus percent EBITDA and free cash flow margins. Contributor number two, Netflix. Netflix, another fallen from grace pandemic beneficiary, Delivered a bounce back quarter, returning a positive 34.6% return versus its software peers at negative 9.1%. Investors have been whipsawed with Netflix, reaching a pre pandemic high, a stock price high of $423 in June of 2018, a pandemic high of $700 in November of 21, and a post pandemic low of $162 in May 2022. After losing 200,000 subscribers in 1Q 2022 and 970,000 in 2Q 2022, alarm bells were sounded for Netflix and bearish hypothetical questions were thrown at the company. Has Netflix hit its peak penetration in developed markets? Was this, the, was this latest increase in pricing the theoretical limit to pricing power? Has competition caught up to Netflix? Did the rush into an ad-supported model and cost-cutting signal more sinister problems at the company? As investors, we needed to examine these hypotheticals in context relative to valuation and come up with an answer. Our July eighth purchase at less than $190 a share in Netflix, our first since May of 2018, sheds light on our conclusion. We ultimately lumped Netflix into the too bearish category and purchased incremental shares. We viewed the aforementioned hypothetical questions as extremely valid but answerable. While disappointing, it was not shocking to see a decline in subscriber numbers for Netflix as post-pandemic consumer behavior favored in-person spending versus stay-at-home spending. We don't believe this to be the end of pricing power for Netflix and expect the new ad-supported model to be a subscriber and ARPU, average revenue per user, accretive. In addition to in addition to lessening the rampant password sharing on the app. On competition, we thought it was helpful to think about it relatively with context paid to the macro environment. We expect this time period to be the peak relative over the top competition for Netflix. The valuation multiple of $1,360 per subscriber for Netflix peaked in May of 2018 and is no longer the case, now valued at just $460 per per subscriber. The era of free money is over. And if Netflix is going to be valued at just 17 times forward EBITDA, others will need to quickly demonstrate profitability or face consolidation. Decisions made to launch OTT services and green light shows were made many years ago, prior to rate changes and subsequent valuation reset. It was comforting to see Netflix's management agree with this view in this latest call. Contributor number three is Uber. We last wrote about Uber as a top detractor in 2Q 2021 during the Delta variant surge. This quarter, Uber outperformed its industrial transport peers, returning a positive 29.5% versus a negative 4.6%. We're encouraged by what we see in the underlying business at Uber and see that our predictions proved out mostly correct from our 2021 piece. One, mobility and food delivery would be C profitability in 2022. EBITDA projections are now greater than five billion for 2024. Two, ads would be greater than $100 million of revenue in 2021 versus 141 million actually and targeting greater than a billion by 2024. Delivery would not be a one-time phenomenon brought on by the pandemic as it is still growing 12% on a $55 billion revenue run rate. We still stand by our initial thesis of Uber and see a pathway to a multi-hundred billion combined TAM of ride-sharing, delivery, and freight, with ancillary services of advertising, grocery, alcohol, and general logistics services. Right sharing is still in its infancy for adoption, and we think the scale and network effects advantage Uber enjoys on its two-sided network for mobility transfers well to the three-sided network of delivery relative to peers. One in 2% iterative improvements compound over time, and they should disproportionately accrue to the largest, most efficient player in the space, namely Uber. We have slowly accrued a larger position in Uber, most recently purchasing in August at less than $30 a share. The market is clearly discounting Uber's ability to achieve its stated 2024 EBITDA target of $5 billion, indicating that the stock is trading at approximately 10 times 2024 EBITDA while growing at greater than 50% year-over-year. We think this is a hangover effect from Uber being the poster child of poor capital allocation and bloated venture valuations. Uber has raised a cumulative $25 billion in investor capital relative to its current market cap of approximately $50 billion achieving a high water valuation mark of 50 or $82 billion at the 2019 IPO. The end result has been a valuation that has gone sideways for over seven years compared to its July 2015 valuation of $50 billion as well. As we highlighted in our November 2019 piece, we thought unscrupulous venture investors were enabling poor capital allocation decisions and highlighted WeWork, Uber, and Lyft as evidence of valuation bloat. Seven plus years of of sideways valuations with a lot of vol- volatility in between tends to shake out the investor base. But we think investors are doing this at precisely the wrong time. The debate over the ride-sharing ecosystem was never that it would, wouldn't be profitable for the companies left standing. It was always a debate on how long until the inevitable monopoly, duopoly, or oligopoly developed globally and how profitable market share eventually would be distributed. If we rewind 12 to 18 months, this future timeline was many years away. Didi, Grab, Lyft, and DoorDash were all still nipping at Uber's heels and in some cases beating back Uber in specific markets and categories, exemplified by the United States where another round of quote-unquote temporary driver incentives were to be issued. The November 2021 press conference by j Powell, the one that finally acknowledged inflation's persistence and the need for interest rate hikes, changed the competitive dynamic dramatically. The effect, this effectively was the end for easy money in the ride-hailing and food delivery categories. Companies would need to justify their existence by generating profitability. Since then, Uber has fallen 42% compared to its public peers. Lyft, Dash, Grab, Justy, and Didi all are down between 73 and 79%. A scenario that recently seemed unlikely to occur until the late 2020s is now more probable to emerge in the next couple of years, Uber-specific profitability results will appear over the next 12 months, demonstrating the strong incremental free cash flow and providing validity to the multi-hundred-billion-dollar TAM investors expected when they underwrote Uber's current $50 billion valuation all the way back in 2015. As long-only investors, we are not happy with a negative absolute return over this time period, but we think this hypothetical, very distant homeostasis profitability environment for Uber is now very near. Detractor number one, Match Group. Match had a rough 3Q, following negative 31.5% relative to its software peers, down 9.1%. Match ran into a few issues in 2022 in the third quarter that specifically contributed to this outside weakness. First, the strength of the US dollar was a headwind for Match, more so than other companies in our portfolio. With 55% of 2021 years revenue derived outside the U.S. and expenses as generally denominated in U.S. dollars, combined effects have contributed to downward estimate revisions, with FX being a 7% headwind last quarter. Second, the pace of global reopening has occurred slower and more disjointed than expected. Specifically, Japan has been much slower to reopen its economy. Even, even as it has reopened, the propensity to rejoin online dating has been slower to react than other developed companies, countries. Third, new CEO Bernard Kim has taken over the reins and has instituted recent changes at Tender, replacing Tender CEO Renate Nyborg. The replacement of another Tender CEO highlights the recent execution issues the Tender brand has encountered, which are expected to slow revenue growth over the next couple of quarters. Bernard and CEO Gary Swindler indicate these issues are not brand endangering, but minor optimization execution issues that will be short-term hiccups for rep- revenue optimization. Our internal checks do not show any material impacts on the brand and we do not believe the swipe innovation is outdated and threatened by new forms of online dating. The long-term secular trends of online dating are still positive tailwinds to Match. Only 43% of North Americans and Europeans have tried an online dating product and lower on the adoption curve since the Middle East and Asia at 26 and 18% respectively. Match has another brand hit on his hands with Hinge, expected to hit greater than $300 million in revenue this year, growing greater than 50% year-over-year and entering its first international market later this year. Lastly, we don't think the days of a high teens growth rate investors have come to expect from the $1.8 billion tender business are done. CEO Bernard Kim, in his prior role as the head of Zynga, is well-suited to gamify the online dating space further and build a better revenue optimization model. We expect to see progress on paid women's features and features for power users. The recent acquisition of The League, where users can spend upwards of $1,000 a week, indicates that Tinder has been placing an artificial ceiling on its power users. We expect ARPU to increase from its current state of approximately $20 per month. There's no reason that Tinder revenues shouldn't follow the Pareto Principle, i.e., the top 20% of users contribute contribute 80% of revenues. Today, spending over $100 on a hundred dollars on Tinder is almost impossible and is almost certainly artificially low. Detractor number two, ServiceNow. We own ServiceNow as a software holding within our technology sector allocation, where the role ServiceNow plays is largely to provide relative value to Microsoft. We have owned ServiceNow across various stages of public existence at its IPO issuance in 2012 during our tenure at the pension, and it's been a position in growth equity since our May 2018 launch. The investment thesis has evolved and the composition of its management has changed, but the opportunity to capture profitable market share is not. For servers now, this revolves around creating a platform addressing workflow automation across the global enterprise. It's total addressable market has long been misunderstood and hard to pinpoint. It's clearer now than it was a decade ago but evidence of its magnitude, and how meaningful it will become, can be gleaned out by its out-year milestones. ServiceNow is on a course to generate over $16 billion in recurring revenue by 2026, with a current operating margin profile of 25% as it penetrates a $175 billion TAM. Despite two significant changing of the guards, ServiceNow is a deep bench of talent and is run by a CEO who knows a thing about selling multi-million dollar global software deals from his prior tenure running SAP. A key measure to, me- to measure the company's efforts here is its ability to address the largest global enterprises. Today, the company has 1,463 customers that pay the company greater than a million dollars in annualized contract value. A figure that grew 22% year-over-year in the June 2022 quarter. Within this, over 100 customers pay service now greater than 10 million, which grew 50% year-over-year. Once landed, customers are also very sticky. The company enjoys a 99% average renewal rate due to the high net promoter score. A tremendous amount of execution and product enhancements have gone into expanding the greater than $1 million cohort from when it first crossed the 100-count mark in 1Q 2014, back when a mega-deal was considered above $4 million, at which time the company generated $478 million in trailing 12-month revenue. There was no material change to ServiceNow's competitive advantage or business model during the quarter. Across the course of 3Q, street expectations for 2023 sales declined 2.7%, largely due to foreign exchange adjustments on the heels of the US dollar strengthening, a 400 basis point uptick for ServiceNow since 1231 2021 This leaves the delta of the stock's 3Q performance mainly due to valuation compressment. With the stock beginning the quarterly, quarter trading 11.4 forward sales and exiting at just 8.8 times. Consistent with our introductory commentary, we believe that the majority of ServiceNow's valuation reset is behind the stock, which capped out at 19.6 times back in November of 2021. Today, it is less than a turn of price to sales multiple more expensive than Microsoft, with a superior runaway of cash flow growth and profitability leverage prospects. As such, we remain optimistic on ServiceNow's relative value rec- creation opportunity within our portfolio. Detractor number three, Twilio. Twilio has avoided our list of top contributors detractors up until now, returning a negative 17% relative to its software peers at 6 This is somewhat of a surprising fact considering the stock price round tripped its pandemic low, going $70 in March of 2020 to $457 in February 2021 before trading at $70 again today. Twilio was a pandemic beneficiary. It's DBE, dollar-based net expansion, a proxy used to measure existing customer spend, growing from 125% in 4Q of 2019 to 139% in 4Q of 2020, and back to 123% in the most recent quarter. Much of this pandemic-induced benefit came from via its messaging business. As enterprises rushed to be able to communicate with their customers, employees, and suppliers, they quickly scrambled to utilize various messaging applications. Twilio's messaging business is a large portion of existing revenue and profit driver, but it carries significantly lower margins than traditional software. Twilio uses messaging as an on-ramp to build out its CDP, its customer data platform. The CDP, acquired via Twilio's purchase of Segment, carries with the traditional SaaS margins, but has been dwarfed by the outside messaging growth over the last two years. As investor appetite towards software has flipped from euphoria to dismay, particular hate has been spewed at Twilio and its mid-50s percent gross margin versus traditional SaaS margins in the 80s. Particular concern has been paid to Twilio's excess hiring and OPEX growth, which subsequently damage incremental margins. We understand concerns on the operating expense side and are glad to see frugality starting to take place. On the gross margin side, we are less concerned with user with using messaging as a form of customer acquisition to drive customers towards Twilio's CDP, which will be very ROI positive. The price decline from $457 to $70 was entirely multiple driven, as gross profit estimates for 2023 have gone from $2.3 billion to $2.6 billion in the same time period. Excluding small acquisitions, estimates are flat over this time despite the negative 84% stock price decline. We use a gross profit multiple to properly account for Twilio's lower gross margins versus other SaaS securities. This forward gross profit multiple has declined from approximately 49 times to 5.3 times today. This is well below its previous historic low valuation of 10.9 times in February of 2018 when Uber, a 12% customer, announced it would be insourcing its messaging product. The equity market is littered with stocks that will never eclipse their 2021 stock prices, whether due to high valuation with interest rates at zero or a one-time pull forward of growth and margins that will never recur. For Twilio, it remains to be seen whether it can eclipse its previous high, but we don't believe the company is impaired on either the growth or margin front. With a high degree of confidence in Twilio's future growth prospects of greater than 25%, we view Twilio as too cheap to ignore and purchased Twilio twice in the third quarter of 2022, most recently in August at $74. Currently valued at twelve point four billion with a net position of cash of $3.4 billion and $7.2 billion worth of federal, state, and foreign NOLs net operating losses, and an upcoming share class conversion reducing voting rights by it for by insiders, makes Twilio a ripe activist and takeout target. Part four, portfolio changes. New positions, Pinterest. Position increases were Netflix, Umbrella, Cloudflare, Garden, MP, Restoration Hardware, Pure Cycle Technologies, Uber, Twilio, and Tapestry. We reduced positions in American Homes, Google, Meta, Accenture, Linux, and Visteon. And we exited a position in EA. Our new position this quarter was Pinterest. Pinterest is the only new position to be added to this portfolio in the last quarter, despite several intra portfolio weighting adjustments. At first glance, Pinterest has similar qualitative characteristics to our top three contributors this quarter a fallen from grace COVID beneficiary, down 80% from its pandemic high stock price, and generally left for dead by investors. Pinterest is generally described as a social media fo- photo feed where users can pin their ideas events, recipes, etc., in a photo or video form backed by a solid user base of 433 million monthly average users. Pinterest represents a different type of social media. Overall time spent on the app is not the end goal. Pinterest has a unique offering to individuals relative to other social media sites and other forms of advertising. It is where discovery meets intent. This unique combination should monetize at significantly higher rates on a time spent metric and should convert to generally higher ARPU than what Pinterest currently experiences. Pinterest rode the stay-at-home wave, growing MAUs from $265 million to a high of $478 million in 1Q 2021, and growing revenue from $756 million in 2018 to $2.57 billion in 2021, all while showing free cash flow margins of approximately 13%. The model's true power was unveiled with greater than 70% incremental free cash flow margins. Revenue growth was created by improving ARPU in the US and Canada, which saw ARPU go from $8.72 in 2018 to $23.44 in 2021. This compares to Meta, formerly known as Facebook, Twitter, and Snap at $204, $75, and $18 per user, respectively. We expect this to grow and realistically shouldn't be similar to Twitter, but the real opportunity is internationally. Pinterest significantly undermonetizes internationally, despite a solid user base of 346 million users. This compares favorably to Twitter at 180 million, Snap at 379 million, and Meta at approximately 2.7 billion users. But Pinterest significantly undermonetizes at just $1.62 per user versus its peers at $12.50, $3.02, and $23.21. After an 80% share decline in February of 2021, we think that the bear case around TikTok and past execution issues are well understood and now more than discounted. Timing wise, we believe the opportunity is ripe for a Pinterest investment influenced heavily by new CEO Bill Reddy, formerly of Google and PayPal, replacing CEO and co-founder Ben Silberman. Bill's background and focus on monetization internationally should allow for a quick acceleration and international revenue growth without the need for a massive investment in an engineering rewrite. Additionally, we don't think the leash is long for Pinterest from the board as a standalone public company. Rumors were widespread that PayPal was interested in buying Pinterest in the mid-$50 stock price range, greater than 100% from today's prices, and the recent announcement of an activist investor acquiring a significant stake makes a quick, shareholder-friendly turnaround very likely.